Good morning. It's good to see you then this morning, to have you joining us in your homes, as well as hearing this week of several of you who are getting together in homes as groups. That's great. Keep that up. We appreciate that. Uh, We are going to run our normal format this morning. I'm going to do a Bible study right now. It's going to be in John chapter 5. It's going to be part 1. Then in the 1030 session, we're going to do part 2 in John 5. So if you have those notes, lessons 10 and 11. As well, in the morning service, we're going to have Pastor Tony. We're going to have some testimony of salvation with an explanation so that uh, that would help if you are using this as a tool to share the gospel. Uh, But just let me mention a couple things. We're maintaining what we're doing right now. We're going to do it next week. But on June 14th, we're going to start resuming services here on the site for those of you who would like to join us. I'll explain more at the end of the second session, give you a lot of the different protocol. We aren't starting everything up at full speed. We're going to go into a phased approach as recommended. And uh, so uh, be ready at the end and hang with us at the end of the second session so that I can explain in depth the plans that the deacons have put in place for that upcoming renewal of our services here on site on June 14th. Our Bible study this morning is in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We are continuing in a series that is entitled The Sayings of Jesus Christ. And what we want to be talking about this morning is dealing with some mistaken identity. I don't know if you've had that experience. I have done it more than my share of times where all of a sudden I mistake somebody for another individual. I did it last, oh, a couple weeks ago and we were doing the food drive. Somebody drove up. I thought it was Pastor Art who had run home to pick up some items for the food drive or for what we were planning. And it was somebody who had a vehicle just like his vehicle. They came driving up. I rent to the vehicle and headed towards the back of their, of their van to open it up. And then it dawned on me, this isn't the same person. They made a comment that it didn't make any sense to me and I totally mistook that individual for pastor art since there was mask and all those things and as a result made a fool of myself. I've done that more than a few times. I uh, told you in the past when I was first married and Deb and I came to PA and we were at a public pool. I didn't, couldn't see well underwater. I went and dunked the wrong woman. Especially it came to my attention when I picked her up out of the water, threw the woman down and her scream was not like my wife's scream at all. Uh, wrong wrong uh, mistaken identity. I shared with you how when we were on vacation for a few days down in Williamsburg, I went to the wrong room after I left my key to our uh, hotel room and was pounding on the door thinking and knowing Deb was on the inside, thinking that was our room, went to the window that was on the public balcony, knocking and peering in the window, only to find out I was a whole floor mistaken. Uh, Frequently, there's a runner who runs in our neighborhood. He's got the, the trim like Pastor Tony, and so he wears similar clothing at times as Pastor Tony. And frequently, my wife and I, when we're coming up and, uh, and we see this runner, we'll beep the horn, we'll be waving, he waves. And as we pass, we realize that's not our son. He just kind of looks at a distance like him. Mistaken identity, it happens all the time. I'm sure you've got your stories as well. Well, the Jews have, should not have been mistaken about Jesus Christ. But they had plenty of information in the gospel, in the Old Testament Bible. There was all kinds of indication who was going to be the Christ. And as a, as a, a point, God made it very clear, gave a lot of specifics, so that when his son would come and be there here on earth in the flesh, the Jews would be able to identify. Let me give you a, a, a few of those passages. I'm going to ask you to join me in Psalm chapter 2 as we get started. We're going to go to John 5, but just to Psalm chapter 2 because it is one of those uh, clear passages that gives and uh, information about the Son of God coming. But while you're turning there, let me give you a couple other passages that were indications and indicators given by God to say, um, this is my Son. This is the one who I'm, I'm sending. Just give you background information. When we say Christ, it's the same as Messiah. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. And so it shows up that title, Messiah, 39 times in the Old Testament. And God had given multiple pictures that there's going to become a redeemer, a messiah. He'd given the lambs, the Passover lamb. He'd given the high priest, the kinsman redeemer. All those symbols and types that would help the individuals to recognize that there is coming a savior to this world. As well, 
God gave some specific statements in the Old Testament so that the Jews who were monotheistic would understand that even though there is one God, that this Godhead had a plurality in its makeup, that Trinity concept. Let me show you a couple of those passages. In Proverbs chapter 30, we read in verse 4, Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? You obviously know he's talking about God. But then he makes it clear God has a son that is going to come one day. And so God Almighty has a son. He, the Jews should have seen this. And they should have recognized that in the texts that talk about unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is more than just a normal human child. Follow the rest. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. It was very clear in this passage that one day there was going to come a unique individual in the flesh who would be God in the flesh, who would be Emmanuel, God with us, equal to Almighty One, equal to the Everlasting Father. We uh, turn to Psalm, I'm sorry, to Isaiah 48. Uh, 48. Here is a text. Watch as we break it down. It says, come you, near, uh, come you near unto me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. The speaker is an individual who was present at the beginning of time. Then he goes on, he says, Now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Clearly, there is a partnership between the Father, the Lord God, the Spirit, and the one who is being sent. So that he is saying that there is a, there is a partnership, there is an equality between Elohim, his Spirit, and the speaker who is going to be coming from heaven on a mission on behalf of those other two. Then we turn to that passage I've already mentioned, Psalm 2. Understand that this passage is one that speaks about the Lord. It is quoted in the New Testament in both the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews as passages referring to Jesus Christ and confirming that he is the Messiah. So we pick up and just read. It says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? He says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so clearly we have the idea that, that there's the Lord, the Lord and his Messiah, his anointed one, are being the ones who are talked about in the passage. And then he says, here's what men say. Let us break their bands asunder, cast their cords. We're going to revolt against God. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. <clears throat> I will declare the decree, and the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little." Blessed are they, are all they, that put their trust in him. So we look at it and we say, okay, we understand that this passage is talking about a father, his son, the son that he's going to set up in rule in Jerusalem. The father clearly honors the son, which men are supposed to be doing too, as he calls them to. And then he warns them. You who are in derision against me. He's laying it out that there is a conflict between the Lord and the kings of the earth. There's a rift between them. And the one to resolve that rift is going to be the Son of God. And he says, kings, if you want to have my blessings, if you who don't want to be destroyed, then you need to kiss the Son. You need to accept him. You need to revere him. And so very clearly, there is destruction predicted to those who reject the Son that he is talking about. Now this again isn't the only text in the Old Testament. Uh, in Isaiah 61, the Spirit, now you have to watch, there's one person speaking, he's going to make him clear he is distinct from the Spirit and from the Father. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings upon the, unto the meek. The idea is somebody's coming to earth to be able to preach on behalf of God and the Spirit's going to empower him. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now you remember, 
Okay? The Jews understood this as messianic. They understood that this would represent the one who's coming in the name of the Lord, the anointed one. And Jesus claimed that this passage was now being fulfilled in their presence when he preached in the, in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And so Jesus clearly claimed, I am that one who is coming in a partnership with the Spirit, with the Father, on a mission. I am the one who is being birthed to this earth. Now, this is not the only time in Luke 4 where Jesus used Old Testament texts that were predictive of Messiah. This is not the only time that he declared himself to clearly be the one that God has appointed to come to this earth as God in the flesh. John chapter 5 is where Jesus really expands upon that idea. We're in John chapter 5, so you join me and basically... If I can simplify our breakdown that we're going to follow here right now in this session and then in the following session, here's what we're going to do. We're going to first of all talk about the miracle that takes place. Then we're going to talk about Jesus' motives for the miracle. And then what we're going to end up with is the message that he is giving to the Jews and to us today. So let's start off in our study just dissecting. Let's talk about the miracle and what happened. We begin in John chapter 5 with verse 1. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to, the, to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Let's back up. Let's just, let's just stop right there. What we're going to find is that this miracle that Jesus does happens in Jerusalem near the sheep gate where if you were to study those charts and graphs, you would find that what this is, is on the northern part of the city, the sheep gate would enter into the city, but it was also very close to the temple confines. And that makes perfect sense. People bringing in sheep headed for the temple, that would be the ideal place to make sure that the temple and that sheep gate are close by. In that same area, this passage is saying there was a pool of water with five porches. And that it was there, and that Bethesda being a house of mercy or a house of pouring. There's a debate on some of that old Hebrew. And so the, he talks about it. Now what has happened, and just to give you information, if you do some research, pick up some books, search the web, and you start doing some study in this passage, you may find, and if you do, then this is the author you're not going to want to follow any further. You may find somebody saying, this is one of those cases where the author of John, John, the author was mistaken in his historical um, information. And if he was mistaken, and here's where they'll go with it, if he's mistaken in his historical data, then he's not reliable when it comes to the rest of the story, the miracle in particular, and what Jesus claims. And you and I have, uh, have, will be hearing this from people who will be saying that there's a lot of mistakes in detail and data. And what's interesting, John gives a lot of detail. He gives the porch, he mentions it, he mentions the pool, he mentions the day of the week, he gives a lot of that background information, which then the critics say he must be mistaken because we don't know anything about the pool. We don't know and don't see where this place is. In fact, for years, the critics pointed out that there was no ancient manuscripts that mentioned any pool of Bethesda or anything of, uh, of that like. And so for many, many years, the people who were critical of the Bible would use this as a major text to say that the Bible is filled with errors and mistakes. However, something started to happen in more recent times. In the late 1800s, they started doing some excavations around and below the cathedral or the church that was called St. Anne's Crusaders Church. And they started doing some excavations that went on for a couple generations. What they found as they dug down quite a bit into the ground and in through the layers of the stone and the sediment, they ended up finding that there really was a pool. There was, in fact, two pools that were surrounded by multiple porches. And if you took them all like in one whole setting, there was one side, another side, a side down the middle. And so there was, there was five, two, uh, two pools separated by one whole colonnade. So there was four on the outside and one down the middle, giving the five porches or the five porticos. They also found 
when all of a sudden the writings of the Qumran community came to light and were discovered that were from that first century, they found in some of those ancient manuscripts, one in particular called the Copper Scroll, they found mention of the Pool of Bethesda. In fact, they call it the Twin Pools or the Twin Outpourings. So what I'm saying is that John gives this detail. You're going to hear and you might see some authors that are criticizing him, but just as John detailed, now we have historical evidence that is caught up with the Bible showing that John was very accurate in his description of the setting of the place. Therefore, the rest of it should be just as accurate in the assumption as opposed to the critics. However, what's really ironic is a lot of people still today who are critical of the Bible quote those sources from years ago that say there is no archaeological evidence. They just totally ignore what's been found in the last hundred years and pretend that it doesn't exist. The fools will maintain foolishness. And so you and I, knowing and studying the story, we would have accepted it, that it is true anyway. But then there's archaeological evidence that backs up everything John says. And the point of the story is that John's recording a miracle, and this is the key factor. It says that it happened on a feast day. And that's going to be very important in, in all the discussion that follows. Now, this is the only time in the Gospel of John he doesn't specify what feast. He just says feast day. Therefore, there's all kinds of uh, uh, discussion amongst Bible scholars. Which one was it? We really don't know. And it really doesn't make any difference, quite frankly. So we go on and we say, okay, what that does indicate to us, no matter what feast it was, there would have been extra crowds in the temple. Some feasts would be more popular and more well attended than others. But either way, compared to the normal time, this, the crowd around the temple and in this region would have been more significant in number than what have, would have been on a normal week of the, of the year. He makes clear, and this is very important, if you jump down to verse 9, it makes it very clear that it is the Sabbath day. It is in that particular part of that feast that is the Sabbath, the day of rest for that feast. And that is critical to the entire story. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. What he tells us is that at this place where Jesus entered into this portico that was adjacent to the ancient temple, that in that area there was many people, a great multitude of individuals that were infirmed. They were gathered, and we read in the next verse, it says they were waiting at the end of verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there who had the infirmity 38 years. Now in that text, and this is where a lot of discussion goes, the question is, okay, is, it, is he relaying an actual historical fact that there was an angel that came down and stirred the waters and this angel or the waters were making a miracle? Or was he reporting this is what was being popularly told? And again, you're going to find good authors, conservative individuals on either side that this was an inset statement by John or this was an absolute reality. It doesn't make any difference for you and me. What it does is it, it goes to the story that says there was a certain man there who was waiting there. This man had been, uh, had been in, uh, in an issue of unable to walk for 38 years. He couldn't walk. We read about the idea in verse 6 that he is just lying there when Jesus sees him. Jesus says, get up and walk. Begin to walk. Get up for the first time. This man, according to verse 14, when Jesus meets him again the second time, he says, you are made whole, sin no more. Which indicates that, there, that in all probability, his illness was a result of some personal sin that he had gotten involved in. We also know that he says in verse 7, when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And his response is, I can't. Nobody is there to help me. I've been abandoned by everybody. That's this man's circumstance. 38 years, unable to walk, because of some choices he made in the past, nobody has anything to do with him. He can't be quick enough to roll over to get into that pool where he suspects that it would heal him of some disease. Well, his circumstances are absolutely dire. That's the setting. That's the story. And what happens is Jesus walks up to him and we read in verse 6, and this is one of those weird questions that you may say, why would he ask this? Certainly, they, when he says, will you be made whole? Do you want to be healed? Well, the man's there. Why would Jesus ask such a question? Think this through for a moment. 
Why would Jesus ask that question, do you want to be made whole? Maybe. Here's some possibilities that are offered. Maybe, maybe Jesus wants to see if this man really wanted, really wanted to be healed of his disease. You say, well, anybody would. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Think this through. Some individuals that you sit down and you talk with, you say, do you really want to overcome that drug habit? Are you really wanting it that you will do whatever it takes, whatever I tell you? Do you really want your marriage to work, to all of a sudden come back into a healing spot? Do you really want to see your kids, you know, to, to uh, improve in their behavior? There's lots of people that would say, yes, I do, yes, I do, but they aren't willing to put the effort into it. They aren't willing to make the sacrifice. Do you really want to overcome that tongue where you all gossip? Do you really want to overcome your temper? Do you really want to change your attitude? Do you really want to get out of that discouragement and depression? Because sometimes there's ease in maintaining where you're at. Sometimes blaming others and not, and not taking responsibility for your issues, that is more comfortable to people. Do they really want to change? Do you really want to grow? Do you really want over... Maybe that's what Jesus was getting at. Do you really want a healing bad enough? Because if you do, you're no longer a beggar. If you do, you're going to have to take care of yourself and be more responsible. So then he, some would suggest this, that maybe Jesus is asking this to give the man some hope. Do you want to be made whole? Do you really want to be made whole with the idea that, hey, there's this possibility? Because if you look at what the man responds, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in. But while I'm coming another, he is filled with despair. He is critical. He doesn't even say yes to Jesus. He just basically complains back to Jesus that I am that I'm all alone. Nobody's helping me. And Jesus is trying to give him a sense of hope and, and of encouragement. Maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe some suggest that Jesus was saying it loud enough that everybody would stop and say, what? To listen to, to see what was going to happen. I don't know about that one. That could be the possibility. But I think this is probably the more likely reason. He wanted the man to get his eyes off of the pool. Off of some dramatic, dynamic, some cure that was based on whether there was a superstitious story or based upon the waters. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you really want to be healed, forget the pool. Listen to me. If you really want to change, stop listening to all those others out there. You know, put down all your research and listen to my words. And I will show you how to overcome that habit, that addiction, whatever it may be, to improve the family life. I can help you to do this if you listen to me. And so Jesus makes that statement, that question to him. And then the man responds with despair. And Jesus says, rise up and walk. Rise up, take your bed, start moving about. Now, interesting to note, he never asked. There's nothing here in, the, in verses 6, 7, 8. Look at it closely. There is nothing where Jesus says, do you believe in me? Do you, do you trust me? Do you know who I am? He doesn't ever ask the, the man any questions about his belief. He just says, get up, pick up your bed and walk. Now, for that man to even attempt to rise... To even try to stand after 38 years of unable to stand, 38 years of muscles atrophying or atrophying, he, this, this man to even attempt it would put a somewhat of a humanistic faith, a genuine faith in what Jesus is saying for him to even try that. Now, you might say, well, yeah, well, he probably heard about Jesus. He doesn't know this is Jesus. If you go further in the story, oops, I want, didn't want to do that. Uh, in verse 13, he makes a comment. He never knew who G Jesus was when he was talking to him. He's putting faith in somebody he doesn't know, and he's going to respond. And so what happens is this man, as we read in verse 9, uh, it says, and immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And so what you have in this story is all of a sudden, this man, without, without responding, there is this instantaneous, this impressive miracle takes place. Think about it. This, this serious illness that made him handicapped, made him paralyzed, made him so he couldn't walk, that had lasted for 38 years, it's, it's gone. It's gone. What an impressive miracle that happened in an instant. 
In an instant, no need for a surgery, no need for a treatment. In fact, it happens that he can all of a sudden get up, bend over, pick up his bed. And it's not like your bed is basically a mat that would be laid out. He bends over. How did he have balance? How did he have muscle strength? You know how it is, some of you who have gone through surgeries and you say, don't pick up over 10 pounds, don't bend over, be very careful. This man did. Without any of that follow-up, he all of a sudden not only got the ability to walk, but he got balance, he got strength, he got everything needed to do what Jesus said. Without time, without therapy, without having to deal with an insurance company. What a blessing, huh? This guy all of a sudden, he is able to pick up whatever he has for his bedding and walk away. The Lord truly did an amazing miracle there in this crowded place on one of those feast days where there'd be more people on the Sabbath day. And it's, it's just a, a phenomenal experience. Think if you were that man. Think of how you would feel, how enthused and encouraged. What a blessing. Can, can we make an observation? Okay. Jesus did this miracle at his word. Nothing else. There's nothing, the power of the word of God, which doesn't surprise any of us because he spoke and everything came into existence. He spoke and there was the lights. He spoke and there was the animals. He spoke and there was humankind. And so we look and say, makes perfect sense to us, but it didn't make sense to the Jews. And for others who may be listening, it doesn't make sense because you still don't recognize who Jesus is. That's the point of the story. That's exactly what Jesus wants to introduce you to, who he is. And literally, I'll put it in his words, I am. And he's going to talk about that in the rest of the chapter. Before we go any further, let me just make an observation. This man experiences God's blessing by doing exactly what God said. He's not the only one that all of a sudden he had to act at the same time that there was this miracle taking place. Well, we, We know stories in the Bible. Miracles took place, but the people had to put their own action into, into uh, operation right away. Okay, we're going, to, we're going to have manna, and when you pick up that manna, you're going to pick up double load on Friday so that it's going to last you for two days. They had to believe, they had to do, and then God performed that miracle of retaining it. We have that situation where they had told, let's go and invade under Joshua's leadership. Let's march in to the land and start taking the promised land. And it says, as the priest carried the ark, when their foot touched the water, then the miracle of the opening takes place. Man, get up, get up. And all of a sudden, as you're getting up, the strength is happening. Your change is coming about. You're getting the balance and all that. You start marching and all of a sudden the waters will part. You do your part. I'll do my part. That same thing happened to the 10 lepers. Remember, Jesus told them, go show yourself to the priest yeah, and because you have been made whole. And it says, as they went their way, they were healed of their leprosy. Same thing happens when Peter says, Lord, can I come unto you on the water? He had to get out of the boat. He had to make a first step to put into practice his faith, his belief, his obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ. So you and I have that same idea that says, okay, many of God's required blessings involve us taking a step, getting up picking up our bed, doing something to see all those blessings of God come pouring out. Do you remember? God promises to meet our needs, but he says to those individuals in Philippi, he says, I'll meet your needs. I'll supply all your needs because you have first been giving. Give and you shall receive concept. You want to see others get saved in a miracle of God using you? Well, you've got to share the word of God. You have to give it out. You have to go and and declare the word of God. Make disciples. They cannot believe unless somebody comes and shares the gospel with them. Somebody has to be that preacher, that proclaimer, who has the beautiful feet of carrying the gospel. That should be you. And when you do that, then God uses you. Jesus Christ makes it clear. Okay? Where he talks about the idea to have godly kids. They don't happen automatically. Without your effort, without you putting some, some labor and time and prayer and fasting into it, you have to train them up. The Word of God gives the indication that to overcome temptations and habits, He's got the power. He can help you. He can give you the strength, but you have to make effort of resisting the devil. 
He, we read about the idea of having a, a tremendous relationship with your spouse. Well, you've got to work at that by submitting one to another and, and uh, loving as Christ loved the church and submitting as, Christ, as the church unto Christ. You want to you wanna have spiritual growth? You want fruit in your life? You need to abide in me. You need to be close to Jesus Christ as you make the effort to be able to be close in fellowship with him, in prayer, in reading your Bible on a daily basis, having that time of communion with him and talking to him and seeking his will. Then he says, you will bring forth much fruit. I was reading a story about an individual, an American, who had traveled overseas and in his business trip, he had gone into this area, in this island area where he was at, and he wanted to get something really beautiful for his wife. Well, he, the, the different people in that marketplace were selling things, and somebody was selling gemstones that were phosphorescent, they said. They would glow in the dark. And they even showed them as they held the box there and kind of, you know, in the, in the daylight, but they kept it close. Can you see how those, those jewels are shining even as you close the box? Then it gets in light, and he, he thought, oh, this would be wonderful. She had it. So he bought the, the uh, gemstones in that beautiful box, took it back. When he got home, he was so excited to give his wife this really unique gift that the, the gems that she would wear on this bracelet would glow at, at all times. So he wanted to show her how it glowed. So they went up into the area of their room where he was going to give her the gift and they went into the dark closet, closed the door, and he said, you know, honey, you'll, you'll love this, opens up the box and nothing. She can't see what's going on. It's too dark. There's no glowing. And he was so frustrated. Oh, I got ripped off. Those vendors in that market, they lied to me. They, they didn't tell me the truth. And only afterwards, when he left the area, his wife picking up the box and looking at it and saying, oh, it's a, it's a beautiful bracelet. But then she read an inscription on the bottom of the box. And she couldn't interpret it because it was another language. But her servant, who worked downstairs, knew the language, went down. And basically it said, if you keep me in the daylight all day, I will shine all night. The jewel hadn't been exposed to the sun. So it wasn't brilliant. But they found out as they exposed that, that bracelet to the sun, it would glow after dark for an extended period of time. Listen, friend. You need to spend time with the sun if you want to be glowing in a cursed world that is dark. If you want to bear much fruit, you need to abide in Christ. Like that lame man, you need to put some effort. You need to follow the word of God to experience the full benefits of his blessings that he wants to give to you. So you and I have come to this point where we say, okay, let's talk about the miracle. It's out of the norm. The miracle was done by Jesus alone. It displayed some phenomenal power. It was instantaneous. We've said that it was complete in all ways right away. It required an act of trust to see it come to pass. And many more miracles were to follow. We're going to know that even though this is the second one that John records. And so Jesus, Jesus wasn't exhausted. He, he didn't meet a, his quota of miracles. But the point is, it came out of an act of mercy towards one undeserving. Which brings me to the second point. The second point is our motives. Or that we want to look at. Or Jesus' motives. We want, to do, we want to explore that. Why did Jesus heal this man? There's multiple reasons through the entire story. As the conversation continues. But let's make sure we understand this. It was to extend pity to one in great need. That is true. That is a fact. You understand that. That Jesus Christ seeing this person in great need, desperate need, Jesus extended pity to this individual. Mercy to that individual. Now, this man, as we know, he's a reject. He's abandoned. Nobody else is with him. He's an outcast. He couldn't even worship in the temple proper. He had limitations because of his inabilities, according to Mishnah. Jesus graciously comes to that individual in need, and he ministers to them. Now, here's a question that some of you may have. Maybe not you, but I'll guarantee others have asked this question. In my research, I found many critics of Jesus asked this question. If Jesus is so merciful and kind, why didn't he heal everybody that was present at that multitude? And the passage goes on, it says... That, that uh, the impotent man said to Jesus, I have no man, verse 8, rise up. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed, and walked. And the same day it was Sabbath. The Jews had asked him who it was, and he doesn't know. And the reason he doesn't know, do, go down to verse 13. He that was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. 
And so the indications are this, okay? You say, well, didn't Jesus heal all those people at that same moment? No. He got, he got out of there quickly. He conveyed himself away, it says. But, think this through, that doesn't mean that he didn't heal some of those same people who were there. He didn't heal them at another time. We don't know that he didn't do that. We do know that he healed many throughout the land of Israel. Oh, time and time again, we read passages. I'm just going to take one gospel. Just one gospel that tells of how when evening came, they brought to him many that were demon-possessed. He cast out all, I'm sorry, I, bl- I covered up some, uh, with his word, and he healed all who were ill. We read another passage in, Ma- in Matthew. Many followed him, and he healed them all. We read another passage where he says he went about the cities and the villages, healing every sickness, every disease. We read another passage. He saw a large crowd, compassion on them, and he healed their sick. We read another text. Large crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the crippled, the blind, the mute, many others. They laid him at his feet. He healed them. And so we have text after text after text, even in his last week, that yet the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, which could be in that same vicinity now. He healed them. And so we know that Jesus healed many individuals. We ought not to be saying, why didn't he heal them all right then? And question his compassion and his caring for people because at this one time he healed one. He healed many on many occasions. In fact, we know that there's a lot of his deeds of healing and of his miracles that aren't even recorded in Scripture. John wrote at the end of this gospel that if every one of Jesus' deeds would be recorded, the books in the, all the books in the world could not contain them. We read when they preach about him later that he went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Point is, even though at this one occasion Jesus didn't heal everybody, he in his pattern healed multitudes of people. I, I, I get challenged when I read some authors saying Jesus wasn't kind. Who are we to question the compassion of Jesus Christ? Who are we to say he wasn't kind in healing all the people at that one moment? Who are we when we don't go and visit the widows and the shut-ins and and we hold back at times from those who are needy? Jesus' life pattern was one of compassion, one of caring, one of ministry, Beyond the the point of expectation, he wore himself out taking care of people. We have no right to question the compassion of Jesus Christ at any moment, and especially at the moment where he healed one man at this time for a specific reason. Jesus, he extended mercy. That was one of his acts here. That was one of the reasons. But When he extended mercy, I want you to catch this before I move on, that didn't mean this man who was healed could do whatever he wanted. The the story goes on a little bit that all of a sudden, the man goes into the temple, which is the appropriate place to go when you're healed, to give praise and thanks. Immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked, and the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it's the Sabbath day, it's not lawful for you to be carrying your bed. He said, he that made me whole, the same said, take up thy bed and walk. Well, what man is that that said this unto thee? Who said, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed, he didn't know. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in the place. But afterwards, Jesus finds him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, you are made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto you. Point being this. Jesus is telling this man who experienced great mercy, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to live a godly life. Your forgiveness of the sin that caused you this illness, that doesn't give you liberty. That doesn't give you excuse to go out and to do what you want and to live any old way you please. That's not unique to this man. Do you remember the story we talked about a couple weeks ago? The woman taken in adultery, and Jesus says afterwards, where are your accusers? And said, they've all left. He said, well, then you go away and sin no more. I forgive you, 
But that doesn't mean I'm giving you freedom to go out and to continue living in sin. He rescued all those, those uh, families of the, the Jewish nation through the exodus, through the Red Sea. And he declared right shortly thereafter, you are my people. Be holy as I am holy. And so freedom doesn't mean that we freedom from the bondage of sin, the effects of sin, does not mean we have freedom to go out and to continue in sin. Shall we that are forgiven, that have been forgiven, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. In fact, we read, If so be that you have heard him and been taught by him, put off concerning the former lifestyles the old man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, self-controlled, righteously and godly in this present world. You and I who have been healed spiritually of our paralysis for decades or for few years, we have been healed. Jesus says those same words to us. We should go and sin no more. We should be individuals that are living holy lives because of the experience of being forgiven by Jesus Christ. And so Jesus makes it very clear to this man that you who have experienced the mercies of God, you are individuals that are supposed to go out and live in a way that you follow the mandates of God Almighty. <coughs> follow his words. Follow his teachings. I've been freed from sin so that I can freely serve the Savior. That's what he's doing. He's telling this man, I am showing grace to you. I am showing great mercies and pity. But there's a second reason. This is very important. To expedite his plans for everyone's benefit. Expediting. When I was working in a company while I was going through seminary, we hired expediters. They were individuals that would move along the shipping. They would get the final product to where it needs to go. They have, as even fast food places, they talk about an expediter to get things that are cooked, served to the, directly to the customer. Jesus wants to expedite, get things moving. And so he makes it very clear, and it all goes back to that statement that he says here, where he says, the author says, on the same day it was the Sabbath. This is critical. To understand why Jesus did one miracle on this one day at this one place, on a, especially on a Sabbath day. Why didn't he wait for the day before or the day after? He did it for a reason. Jesus does it because he came with a mission. Let me remind you that his mission was to come and to save all his people from him sin. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that we would believe on him and not perish. His mission, the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is his mission to call the righteous, not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. That's his mission. Now think with me this, the mission included giving his life giving his very life to save those people, to sacrifice himself. Why were yet sinners? Christ died for us. He talks about to give his life a ransom for many. We read the good shepherd lays down his life. We read, I lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus knew he was going to die to have to be sacrificed in order to provide that, to complete that mission of providing salvation for all. In this plan, his death was to be done via the Jewish leaders. That was very clear. The Son of Man must suffer, rejected of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and killed. He said this three times in the Gospel of Mark, in a series of just a short time, that the Jewish leaders needed to be involved in rejecting him and having him crucified. Think this through. Jesus is going to expedite his plan. The plan of bringing about the angst of the Jewish leaders. The plan of bringing about their attempts and their desire to kill him. And the way it goes is in John chapter 5. He heals the man. And we read the Jewish leaders in verse 10. They didn't ask the man, Whoa, isn't this exciting? You were cured. They, they, they aren't enthused about it. They say, wait a minute. It's not lawful you to carry your bed. Who said that you could carry your bed? They didn't, they didn't ask him, <coughs> who, you know, who made you whole? Who told you you could carry your bed? This is the Sabbath. 
You broke the, he broke the Sabbath laws. And so it goes on. Follow the text. He that was healed didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus found him afterwards in the temple. He says, behold, you are made whole. Sin no more. The verse 15. The man departed, told the Jews it was Jesus that had made him whole. And the man is focusing on the cure and the enthusiasm of being able to walk. <coughs> what do the Jews focus on? Verse 16. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day. Their whole concern was Sabbath rules. Sabbath regulations. Not the, the infirmity of the man. Not the healing of the man. And so Jesus... <coughs> Excuse me. Very clearly. Here's, here's some thoughts just to think out loud. You as a parent. You as a pastor. You as, you as a church leader. You in your workplace. Jesus was very purposeful in what he did. Jesus in this fact, in this, in this situation, he wasn't just busy ministering and being busy. He was purposeful in what ministry he was busy with. We look at it and he says he always moved and ministered according to the Father's plan. According to the Father's will. We're gonna, we're, we've read already where he says, My meat, that which nourishes me, is to do the will of the Father. And then in verse 30, if you look down, he says, My, you know, I always do what the Father wants me to do. Think this through. He even limited his ministry. He limited ministry activity at, to what best achieves his purpose. Instead of healing everybody at that day, he says, I'm going to heal this man at this moment, at this time, convey myself away. Why? Because I'm going to get involved with the idea of, okay, this conflict is essential. This has to happen in accomplishing the Father's plan. He, his ultimate purpose was not healing numbers. His ultimate purpose wasn't just getting, getting statistics his own con, or his own comfort. It was carrying out God's plan of redemption. Challenging. Challenging thoughts to just meditate on. But here's, here's the whole point. That Jesus had a plan. And he had to stir up the Jewish leaders to help fulfill this plan. Uh, let's make some observations right now. He's very gracious to those in need. You, me, are included in those in need. We may not be suffering from a physical situation where we can't get up and walk. But spiritually, we're just as lame. We are individuals that need the mercies of God day by day by day. His mercy also brings a mandate to live a godly life. We know that. We understand that. That you and I who are born again, who have accepted Christ as our Savior, are not, to free, are not free to live any old way we want. We, we understand Jesus worked to accomplish his greater purposes. He still does that today. He has greater purposes than comfort, than numbers, than statistics. What, is, what might that be? I'll give you two. Two of his great purposes that are happening today. One is found in Second Peter. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And in this text, he's talking about our days, the latter days. As some men count slackness, but he is waiting. He is waiting to put an end to all evil, all crime, all corruption, all sin. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why doesn't he come and take us back? Because he wants to see more people saved. He has a greater desire. Why do you think God, God works the way he does? Why has he allowed COVID to become such a problem? Could it be that he wanted to get people's attention? That this is a way to remove all the distractions and to slow us down? Could it be to show that we are frail creatures for all of our technology and our devices and our achievements, which are phenomenal, which are great, that they are very limited, that we are but dust, that we are very weak creatures, and we have to face our weakness and our mortality? Why, why does God put you in the situation where, where you work, where you live, why does he put people in contact with you, teenager? That they're your friends. So they would hear the gospel from you and get saved. Why has God given you certain skills? Some of you musically, some of you technology-wise. Some of you in, in working with your hands. Why has he given you those skill sets? So you can use them to be a missionary to your neighborhood, to your people that you are serving 
We look and say, God has put you in circumstances that for some of you are extremely dire. Why? Because he has a plan. And that plan not only is saving people, but there is another aspect of that plan. I take you to Romans. For whom he did foreknow, he knew all about you and me, and he says, okay, those of us who are born again, he foreknew us and he predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son. He didn't predestinate us just to get saved. He didn't, that's not even a part of this conversation. He says, I predestinated those that I knew would be born again. I predestinated you, predetermined that you are going to become more like my son. I'm going to mold you. I'm going to make you more Christ-like. I'm going to work in your mind, in your heart. And so you and I have to ask, okay, are we more Christ-like now? Are we individuals that speak more like Jesus, that in pain and trials, we are acting more like Christ? Do people around us see Jesus when they look at us? Do we forgive individuals the way Christ forgave? Do, do, we, do we show patience the way Christ shows patience? Do we share the gospel the way that he shared his message? Are we individuals that minister? Are we individuals that do the Father's will? Are we folk that resist temptation the way Jesus did? Are we more like Christ day by day? Are we individuals that respect the government that is corrupt, and he lived in a corrupt government? Do we respect them the way Jesus did? Are we like Christ? Are you more like Christ now than when this COVID situation started? That's what he's trying to make you. That's what he's trying to develop in you. He, he is like the, um, the health trainer. That this individual in an article told about that when, when the training started, that person went to the fitness center and they said, you know, I, you know where, where do I need to go to get fit? And that the, 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 their, I forget the term that you're going to use, the person that worked with them, their trainer, had this mirror on the wall and outlined their form, but thinner and slimmer and trimmer and said, that's our goal. Everything we do is to make you look like that outline in the mirror. And after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of effort, that person was able to stand there and the weight was off and they now looked and fit inside that outline. God is trying to make you fit into the outline of his son. He is working in your spirit. He is trying to move. Are you responding? Are you listening? My friend, that is God's purpose. See people saved, see you conformed to Christ, all for his glory. And Jesus makes it very clear that he will work in unusual ways and he will be persistent to achieve his purposes. Are you more like him day by day? Hey, time for a time out. Let's take a break. We'll come back to the rest of the study in a, in a few minutes from now. Thanks. Thanks.